I think we're wired for sound. Can you hear that? Well, um, welcome again. Welcome, as Jan said, welcome back to those who were here last night and uh, welcome this morning to those who have joined us today. We heard last night from uh, Father Lawrence welcoming us to this gathering whose theme is contemplative Christianity. And we gather for our conference this year in, in what seem like increasingly critical times. I know it's a bit of a cliched way to begin. <laughs> Every generation has its crises to contend with. But in our case, we live in times that, that are critical not simply for our particular community or civilization, but for the future of life on Earth. A fact being acknowledged around the world today with a global day of action, rise for climate. Scientists speak of our having entered a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, where for the first time in evolutionary history, human activity is not only shaping but radically disrupting the earth system processes necessary to sustain life. And it's well known that we're leading, exceeding planetary limits in a whole range of areas, from carbon emissions to ocean acidification to biodiversity loss. And that, in the words of French scholar Jean-Pierre Dupuis, humanity is currently on a suicidal course towards a disaster comprised of a whole system of disruptions, discontinuities, and basic structural changes that are the consequences of exceeding critical thresholds. Well, this context necessarily affects every aspect of life and every human endeavor. We can't live as though our environmental sins are separate from the practice of Christian faith and the being and vocation of Christian communities. And just as the German church in the 1930s could not truthfully gather to reflect on its life and call without engaging the so-called Jewish question, without being alive to the urgency of that issue, so the church in our day gathers and acts with integrity only to the extent we're mindful of and responsive to the ecological crisis. As I said, our theme this weekend is contemplative Christianity. And it seems to me that the emergence of contemplative Christianity and a contemplative church does have a role, perhaps a vital role to play in these times. And so to begin to, to unpack this connection and to see, to see how this is, we have a contribution, I think we need to reflect in a little bit more depth on what we mean by these notions and so begin to imagine what the particular contribution of contemplative communities might be for the life of the world. So that's the main focus of this talk. In the next session, um, particularly in the second part, we're going to focus a bit more directly on the implications of this for our own local communities and to invite your engagement with this question of contemplative Christianity, as I mentioned last night. So first, 
contemplative Christianity. The phrase suggests a distinctive style or way of being Christian. And I want to begin exploring it by saying a little about the Christianity side of things. To be Christian is to follow Jesus and to be taught by him. At the heart of the teaching of Jesus is the call to be human differently. Rowan Williams has said that Christianity involves a profound confidence that we have a distinctive human destiny to show and share with the world. This destiny is concerned with what John Main called the expansion and transformation of consciousness. It means a shift from ego-centeredness to other-regardingness, from fear and self-protection to love and self-giving. Christian life, he says, is about our liberation from the individual bondages of our personal histories as well as our collective enslavement to sin, fear and ignorance. All of which diminish and distort us and so distort our relationships with one another and with the rest of creation. Of course, it's entirely possible to live without embarking on this journey of transformation without expanding our vision and capacity for love. We can spend our whole existence defended, self-serving, disconnected and fearful. But Christianity makes the normative claim that to live this way is to be less than we're created to be. Last night, Lawrence said, this isn't about perfection but it is about being open to this journey of transformation. And Rowan Williams again says that to be fully human is to be recreated in the image of Christ's humanity. And this means becoming more able to see as he sees, love as he loves. It means growing in our capacity to recognise and enable wholeness in ourselves and in others. That's holiness. And the question is, how does this shift in being become possible? Well, the good news, the Gospels, proclaim that God actually is on our side with this, is not trying to get in our way, but is actively, you know, prodding us in this direction. And in fact, that Jesus came to lead us on the way. All we need to be human as he is human is to enter into his relationship with the Father. And so, once more quoting Williams, to be open to all the fullness that the Father wishes to pour into our hearts. All we need to be human as he is human is to enter into his relationship with the Father. Simple, (laughs) but not easy. And that's because although God's liberating and expanding life wants to share itself with us, 
Receiving this gift is almost always hard. It's a disorienting and even painful matter. We resist it because it demands that we face up to and engage with the wounds of our lives and the wounds we've dealt others. That's repentance. It involves the slow, patient and sometimes frightening process of giving up habits of thought or patterns of response that may have helped us at one time, may have been necessary, yet now no longer serve. And it involves letting go something of the selves and the identities we've known and being open to the risk and adventure of the new. Now, all Christian prayer and worship is supposed to lead us on this journey into this dynamic of repentance and conversion, of losing and finding, dying and rising. In practice, though, as we all will have experienced at one time or another, our religious beliefs, our rights and prayers can become formulaic and confining. And rather than unmasking and undoing the prideful, self-protective self, either you know, within us or within us as a collective, our believing, our being good, our going to church can be precisely the way we maintain a robust and defensive religious ego. And, and this, I think, brings us to the significance of the contemplative half of the phrase, contemplative Christianity. Because contemplation is a radical practice for letting ourselves and all that defensiveness go. In the laying aside of thoughts, in stillness and silence, contemplative prayer, meditation, asks us to be radically undefended and available. Naked, if you like, before God. The tradition talks here of kenosis or self-emptying, of self-forgetting and self-dispossession, or more simply, poverty of spirit. And John Mayne described this profound letting go of self as the complete simplicity that demands not less than everything. And this, he says, is how we enter with our whole being into the movement beyond the self and into God. It's how we hand ourselves over, as Jesus did, and so become open to the fullness of the divine life. It's how we become who we're created to be truly, fully, humbly human. Contemplative prayer is a practice that leads into the lived experience of continuous conversion because we never get there, we never arrive. So it's, this, it's a continuing process, but it's a continuously deepening process, which is an ever more generous openness to the life of God. 
So when I think of this phrase, contemplative Christianity, I think it's a way of being Christian which intentionally and repeatedly returns us in practice, not just as we talk about it, but in practice to this place of radical poverty and receptivity. And we know, as we're meditating, that for each of us as individuals, this is a profoundly transformative process. It's profoundly unglamorous, and mostly it feels like we're stuffing it up and, and, and you know, we're not getting anywhere. But you, you do, I'm sure, notice over time the shifts, the changes, the, the, the lessening of defensiveness. So we, we know that for each of us as individuals, this is a profoundly transformative process. And the, the question I guess I'm wanting to invite us to consider is how the contemplative practice of Christian faith affects the being of Christian communities. This is not just about teaching meditation as one form of prayer, an add-on, to the way we do church. It's about the life and mission of the whole church being renewed by contemplative consciousness. How does the contemplative practice of Christianity transform the church as a body? And how does that matter for the life of the world? Well, there's a lot to say here. It seems to me that growth in contemplative consciousness affects Christian life at a whole range of levels. It changes how we approach liturgy, theology, and the reading of scripture. Last night, Lawrence spoke about the, the, the way meditation changes how we, how we read and receive and are nourished by scripture. It enables deepening personal discernment and also a, a, a much more effective work of communal discernment. Again, I think that, that notion of discernment has often become pretty eviscerated in, in Christian life. We, we talk about discerning when really me, we mean we're thinking and then blaming the Holy Spirit. You know? So, so th- what we need is to develop a much kind of deeper practices of communal discernment. I think practice of contemplation helps with that and also awareness of and processes for spiritual formation it challenges unthinking clericalism and authoritarian structures and the mainstream churches are very seriously being invited to reconsider those those issues as you know um, in the wake of the royal commission So all of this is is vitally important for renewing the church and communicating the gospel in our time. But this morning I want to explore another dimension of all of this. And that's the suggestion that a contemplative church is fundamentally less tribal and even, you might say, less religious than other expressions of Christian faith. Let's start with this idea of Christianity beyond tribalism. I said just now that meditation is a practice of letting go of ourselves and being open to the gift of continuous conversion. 
the more we enter this process, the more we realise that following Christ isn't about grabbing hold of any fixed identity. Quite the opposite, in fact. It involves the constant willingness to leave all such fixed identities behind and be drawn beyond, into the unknown, into the unfathomable mystery of the one Jesus called Father. And hence all those metaphors so beloved of the mystical tradition about clouds and deep darkness and abyss and desert and unknowing. It's kind of surprising we're not beating people off with a stick to join us in this, um, you know, journey into the dark. But the effect of this process of of being drawn beyond, of, of getting used to leaving behind a fixed identity and being called into the next, the next phase, the effect of this process is that it lessens the importance of the labels we use to describe ourselves and classify others. St Paul understood this very well, telling the community at Corinth that as long as they were squabbling among themselves, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, they were missing the main point of the gospel. They were behaving as infants in Christ and according to what he calls their untransformed human inclinations. I planted, Paul says, and Apollos watered, but these labours were only ever in the service of drawing you to the God beyond us all, who is the only one who can give the growth. If you get stuck at the level of identifying as a member of Paul's group versus Apollos' group, then you haven't really got very far. And by analogy, it seems to me that maturing in the gospel means that denominationalism becomes something we take much less seriously. At least insofar as it's used to divide ourselves from and judge those of different affiliations. And this subversion of tribal denominational identity is very obviously an early fruit of contemplative practice. Think of the way our own WCCM community has been ecumenical from the start, as has the Centering Prayer movement founded by Thomas Keating and others. In his address, the one that I've already quoted, to the Synod of Bishops of the Roman Catholic Church in Rome in 2012, The then Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, noted just this dynamic. He said, The contemplative habit strips away an unthinking superiority towards other baptised believers and the assumption that I have nothing to learn from them. The fundamental orientation of a contemplative church will be ecumenical. Of course, denominationalism isn't the only form of tribalism within Christianity. In the contemporary church, divides between progressive and conservative, evangelical, liberal, small-c Catholic and charismatic can be at least as entrenched as denominationally-based prejudice. In relation to these divisions too, Contemplative consciousness allows for a new approach. 
And that's because as we practice letting go our tribally defined and self-possessed identities, we're able to be less defensive and less attached to the Christian subcultures that have formed us and may continue to nourish us. This doesn't mean that theological, liturgical and structural differences are unimportant. Some expressions of our faith are more helpful and more true to Christ's way than others. It's not just about anything goes. We must discern how we rightly practice faithfulness and obedience to him. But this work of discernment can't be short-circuited by simple appeal to team membership. You know, Catholics good, Protestants bad, or vice versa. Evangelicals good and liberals bad, or vice versa. And even Christians right and Muslims wrong, or vice versa. There are always things we can learn from one another. From a Christian point of view, the real test of any expression of faith is that it draws us into this dynamic of continuing conversion, whose fruit is ever-deepening compassion and mercy. At least that's what Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 seems emphatically to say. You can cry out, Lord, Lord, all you like. But unless you've been drawn into the same pattern of relating to one another that characterises the life of Jesus, then you haven't been following him. So one profound implication of the contemplative practice of Christian faith is that it subverts the significance of tribal identities within the church as well as between Christianity and other faiths. It calls us to a much deeper discernment of spirits and gifts us with much greater freedom to befriend one another across party lines. A second and related implication is that a contemplative Christianity leads into a new experience of the relationship between the church and the world and between so-called religious and so-called lay vocations. So I, I called this section Christianity Beyond Religion, although it doesn't get quite as exciting as that promises. And, uh, you know, this is a, a theme I'd like to keep developing. It, it's perennially tempting for those within the church to think of Christian renewal in terms of the church's own survival, expansion and power. And though this is conceived of and and even justified in terms of the desire to serve the world, the lived experience of being in the church can be of separation from the world. There's no insincerity here. But I don't know if you have had, as I have, this experience of, you know, it's like we're in here seeking to maintain our life and our relevance and contribution. And there's somehow an enormous effort required to get out there, to connect with the world, to love and serve. It's as if, despite all that we 
long for and hope for, it's as if the flow of energy is centripetal, kind of inwardly directed, sucking us in. On John Main's account, a striking feature of the earliest Christian meditation communities was a shift in the direction of this energy, a felt shift. For one thing, the world, in the form of people actively seeking a deepened practice of prayer, came to the monastery. John Main said it had not been the intention of the first meditation community in London to recruit members or even to promote meditation. Its essence was to be itself, open to the mystery of its own call, its own being. What happened though, and he says, in hindsight, this is predictable, what happened was that this mystery was soon called on to share itself. In other words, as this community was faithful to its own calling to prayer, large numbers of people of all ages, walks of life and religious backgrounds came seeking a contemplative journey and serious spiritual teaching. The new community found itself participating in something it had not imagined for itself. Open, Main wrote, to a mystery greater than ourselves and containing us, a great current of the spirit. By and large, the vocations of these spiritual seekers remained in the world. They weren't drawn in as permanent members of the residential community, but were empowered to return to their lives and work in the world in a new way, with a new interiority and depth. Through sharing in the prayer of the community, they began to experience the transformation of their humanity, just as we have already spoken about. And John Mayne understood that these seekers were thus the real apostles on whom the church depended. He says they were the catalyst that would break the spell of materialism and restore the spirit of wisdom to the institutions of society. And I think this is a vital insight. At the deepest level, there is no separation between church and world. The whole of reality is held in the love of God and all are called to participate in God's ministry of reconciliation and transformation. If this is so, then the primary concern of the church and of religious life cannot be with its own success or even with its own life. The real work of the church is to enable and deepen everyone's participation in the mission, in the reign of God. And reflecting on this in terms of the contribution of monastic communities, John Main said that very early on, it became clear that only a monasticism vitalized by a return to its essential task of seeking God in pure prayer can re-establish a useful relationship with the modern world. This relationship is a release and transmission of spiritual energy. So he saw this return to pure prayer, this release of spiritual energy, that was, what, that was the necessary gift. 
And it seems to me the same must be true for the church as a whole. This doesn't mean that our Christian communities can't engage in particular external works or ministries or programs, offering shelter to the homeless, advocating for justice, supporting the elderly and all the kinds of things that churches do. But it's so easy for these works to become how we justify ourselves, the way we reassure ourselves that we really are doing something of value. A contemplative practice of Christianity frees us to know that the church's first call is to prayer. It's not to compete with other agencies in the world for influence and space so as to secure its own identity. Rather, it's to enable access to real encounter with the living God and in this way to be a catalyst for the transformation of the whole. Just as Jesus said, to be salt, leaven, light. And this means that the basic energy of a contemplative church is not centripetal, inwardly directed, but centrifugal, turned outward. Without the anxiety about how we get them all in, by the way, just (laughs) turned outward. And I wonder if this may be part of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer meant when he called for a religionless Christianity in a world come of age. Like I said at the beginning, I'm conscious this is brief and a bit dense and that there's a lot more to be unpacked here. But I've been suggesting that a a contemplative church is fundamentally less tribal and less self-consciously religious than some expressions of Christian faith. And I've tried to say something about the implications of this for relationships between religious communities as well as for the church's sense of its mission. I've suggested that contemplative practice subverts how seriously we take denominationalism and other identities based on churchmanship and has implications also for interfaith relations. And I've suggested that it shifts how we experience the church's relationship to the world and understand its distinctive contribution to the transformation of the world. So why does this matter? In this last part of the talk, I want to return to the question of our societal, our global context. I've mentioned already the ecological crisis But we face also crises or turning points in many other aspects of our culture, our democratic systems and political political institutions, in our economic frameworks and sense of human meaning. How might contemplatively renewed and transforming Christian communities contribute to these crises in healing ways? What's the gift we have to offer? Well, there's quite a bit to depress us about the current scene and you don't need me to go over the details of uh, the ineptitude, inertia and vested interests that seem to keep our society and our politics and our response to some of these crises mired in destructive habits and tribal rivalries 
and at times seemingly powerless to change course. Yet it's not all gloom. There are many actively engaged in seeking the Earth's healing and well-being. From dedicated climate scientists, activists and ecologists, to, to economists who are radically criticising the current paradigm and imagining the possibility of abundant justice, to those working to create new forms of participation so as to revive democratic politics and the possibility of a shared vision of the common good. Some of you will know of a recent initiative called Australia Remade, launched by an alliance of over 200 civil society and activist organisations and community leaders. And that's, I think, an example of this kind of vision and platform for change. And it, in turn, is part of what the English political commentator George Monbiot describes as a worldwide and explosive revival of civic life, as people organise themselves to rebuild society from the bottom up. And in his book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, Monbiot talks about the significance of a range of expressions of what he calls participatory culture. These expressions transforming lives and serving justice in neighbourhoods, cities and whole regions. And he mentions initiatives such as time banking, farmers markets and food assemblies and transition towns which bring people together to transform their use of energy and revitalise the local economy around green principles and lots of other things and lots of other amazing things that are happening. All these are signs of hope and churches are often part of these networks alongside secular organisations and other faith communities. As I read Monbiot and others though, including the vision of Australia Remade, a concern I have is whether such new forms and visions for community can be sustained without fuller attention to the contemplative dimension. There seems insufficient acknowledgement of how hard it is to sustain communities of goodwill, even for those who are disposed to altruism and interdependence. There's little attention to the process of transformation required for human beings to become capable of realistic self-knowledge and the generosity and wisdom the qualities so necessary for communal stability and discernment under conditions of strain. The failure of idealised forms of community in the 1960s and 70s and no doubt various experiments before then suggests that utopian reliance on good intentions will not do. Really, you only have to have lived in a share house to figure this out. <laughs> And this is where it seems to me that contemplative Christian communities do have something vital to offer the whole. Because if, if something like citizen-led social transformation is to be sustained, what's needed are places and contexts where we actually practice detachment from our unexamined instincts and reactions. Even our best intentions and desires for good have their shadow side. They're vulnerable to the egoic compulsion to be someone or to be the one who makes the difference. 
They're liable to be exhausted by the sheer difficulty of sustaining hope over the long haul and by our anxieties about death. Contemplative practice keeps us humble, open and nourished by our connection with the deep source, the living water. It liberates us from the need to defend our identity and secure our own worth. And this means that our capacity to engage generously and hospitably with difference grows. I think it's the only real antidote to tribalism. Denominational, religious, ethnic, national. It's how sufficient space is created within us that we may really listen to others and so be capable of the genuine sharing of life. If citizen-led social transformation is to be sustained, what's also needed are contexts that enable us to grow and mature, to learn wisdom. And that only happens when we're in spaces that are safe enough to acknowledge our failures, acknowledge injury and confusion in a context of acceptance, mercy and forgiveness. There's no growth in wisdom possible in the Liberal Party room because there is no safety. Contemplative communities committed to the process of continuing conversion will foster those kinds of opportunities and practices such as self-reflection and discernment to allow for this kind of growth. In such communities, there will be those ahead of us on the way who encourage us to keep going and who make visible both within and beyond the community the possibility of a transformed humanity and the healing it enables. And finally, if citizen-led social transformation is to be sustained, what's needed are practices that help reconnect us to the whole web of life. It's not enough that many of us are sincerely committed to values of justice, mutual flourishing and the like. We need to be drawn into the felt experience of communion with other people and with the whole of the material world. We need to know it. If our culture's destructive course is to be fundamentally altered as opposed to just the symptoms ameliorated, we must realise how alienated we've become from our own creatureliness and how dissociated from the human condition. And here, as I'll touch on after morning tea, the contemplative wisdom of Australia's Indigenous people, as well as the Christian practice of contemplation, is a vital contribution. So all these gifts of detachment, humility and deep listening, of mature self-knowledge and self-acceptance and so wisdom, and of a lived sense of communion with others and with the whole creation, all these are gifts that are available through contemplative practice. They're what we have to offer for the life of the world. They don't depend on massive renewal of the institutional church. They don't depend on an increase in vocations. 
or huge evangelistic programs. They simply require that those of us called to this way of prayer be faithful to the journey of maturing in Christ. That we be hospitable to all who desire to learn this way and willing to participate wherever we find ourselves in sharing these gifts. which is to participate in God's mission of reconciliation and transformation. How we create and nurture such contemplative communities of practice is an important question. And that's what I'm hoping we'll move towards in the next session. Thank you. I think it's time for morning tea. Around there, and we're back again at 11.30.